This is Nutshell Politics, a show where we discuss what you need to know about current events, international relations, political conflict, and my favorite topic of discussion, terrorism. The mainstream media isn't always the best at reporting on international events. They often lack depth, context, and understanding, a problem unfortunately driven by ratings. But here, on Nutshell Politics, I seek to fill those gaps, and most importantly, to make sure you know what's actually going on out there. So let's dive in. Hey everyone, and welcome back to a brand new episode of Nutshell Politics. My name is Justin Kinney, and I will be your charming host this week as we discuss a current event. Now, the topic we're going to be discussing today is actually not the one I had on tap and planned for this week, but because of some recent escalations in tension between the United States and the country of Iran, I thought this was an important topic to discuss. Uh, And so, as I just said, the tensions between the United States and Iran have been escalating for a little while now, and there's actually roots in this that go back decades, which I'll talk about in a minute. But just in the last week or so, there have been some serious ramping up. Of, of tension here uh, to the point where we're probably at the highest level we've been in, in decades after Tehran shot down an American drone Thursday and then the United States uh, started to uh, started to retaliate but uh, pulled back at the last minute according to Donald Trump about 10 minutes before they were supposed to launch. So we're going to talk a little bit about the U.S. Iranian relationship first and then we'll dive into kind of what's happening right now and where we might see this going forward in the future. As I said, I wanted to kind of go back and talk a little bit first about the relationship that U.S. has had with the country of Iran over the years and kind of set a little bit of the groundwork for where uh, this escalation has come from. And it's actually really interesting because the relationship between the country of the United States and the country of Iran uh, goes back decades. So more than 65 years, there this relationship has been, uh, shall we say, tricky. Uh, to outright dangerous at points. And it goes really back um, to the overthrow of the Iranian prime minister back in 1953. This was a man by the name of Mohammad Mossadegh. Uh, He was a democratically elected prime minister at the time, and he had sought to kind of nationalize Iran's oil industry. But both U.S. and British intelligence agencies were not happy with him, and so they actually helped orchestrate a bit of a coup that helped oust this prime minister, mostly because there were fears that he was susceptible to to communism. And so this ouster, we ended up putting a a shah in power in Iran that was much more pro-Western, pro-United States uh, as well. And this was... This had a couple different effects. Uh, first, it did actually calm things down for a little while, but it also created kind of an undercurrent among the Iranian people that they saw the U.S. and the West in particular as kind of meddling in their political affairs, doing so in, in, inappropriately, I should say. And so while this did calm things down in the short run, it actually kind of laid some of the groundwork for things that will come in 20 years or so. Uh, And this does take place in 1979. And so in 1979, the country of Iran was becoming more Western, uh, more open. And there were some people within the country, uh, civilians and people in government, who were not happy about this. They were actually uh, quite upset. And so they, they ended up revolting. And this led to a whole situation took place in Iran for a long period of time. It led to the Iranian hostage crisis 
which was when um, some of the U.S. embassy staff in Tehran were taken hostage for over a year. And the Shah was ousted and the country becomes an Islamic Republic. And so this is where we see the birth of what we think of Iran today happen in 1979 when they become a, a religious uh, theocracy as opposed to the more pro-Western power that was that was there beforehand. And so when this happens, the United States basically severs all diplomatic ties with the country. Uh, it was seen as obviously a very anti-U.S. movement. They put into place a, a power that was anti-Western and was, as I said, very theocratic, not very democratic, not, not Western-focused at all. And so this um, led to a lot of drama, and this is where we really see the tension from today birth, 1979, with the Iranian hostage crisis and the Islamic Revolution there. And actually, this, this time period in the, with the Iranian hostage crisis sparks uh, a lot of pretty dramatic events. Um, and actually, if you want to see some of this dramatized, there was a an Oscar-winning film, I want to say six or seven years ago, called Argo, that dramatizes part of this, this issue. Uh, in this particular movie, that six Americans who had escaped the embassy end up getting smuggled out of Iran by a group of uh, CIA agents basically posing as filmmakers. And so that becomes dramatized. It's a, it's a Ben Affleck movie. It's actually really well done. Um, it's, it's one of my favorite movies. It's really, really good. And it really demonstrates some of the, the dramatization that took place. Now, obviously, it's a movie, not a doc documentary. So there are some things they get wrong. Uh, in particular, they, it become, the movie is very U.S. focused. There were other countries that were involved as well in this. But it really kind of does show some of the tension that took place and what was really happening in this revolution and hostage crisis. Now, those hostages are ultimately all freed, uh, I believe, in 1981. Uh, so this is about a, a year and two months or so after they were initially seized. And uh, they were held in total for well over 400 days. Now, getting into the 1980s, we see Iran restart their nuclear program. This is during the Iran-Iraq war. And during this time period as well, you have the whole Iran-Contra scandal. This was took place in 1985. Essentially, what happened is that the the U.S. secretly ships weapons to Iran in exchange for their help in freeing U.S. hostages that were held in Lebanon by a group called Hezbollah. Now, the profits from this actually end up getting um, channeled to rebel groups in Nicaragua, which is one of the big scandals of the Reagan presidency. But this creates kind of a weird, complicated, tricky relationship between the United States and Iran. Now, as I said, Iran restarted their nuclear program during this time period in the 1980s during this Iran-Iraq war that's taking place here. And the U.S. and other countries in the West in particular spend decades trying to get Iran to kind of curb their program and pull it back. And this is not successful. And over, over time, we see this relationship get more and more toxic between the United States and Iran to the point where in 2002, you hear President George Bush of the United States as part of his State of the Union address call Iran part of the term axis of evil, along with Iraq and North Korea. And so this speech really sparks a lot of outrage across the country of Iran as well. Now, we also, we don't know a lot about their nuclear program in those early years, but in 2002, uh, an Iranian opposition group within the country releases information that Iran is actually developing a uranium enrichment plant, which is something that is not exclusively, but normally used for 
nuclear weapons. And so the U.S. formally accuses Iran of creating a clandestine or secretive nuclear weapons program. Iran denies it, says they're using the nuclear energy for, for peaceful purposes. And so we go under pretty much a decade of, of diplomatic engagement and activity with uh, the, the U.N., the United Nations, as they, as they start to investigate and try to figure out this nuclear issue. And several rounds of sanctions get placed on Iran during the 2000s. Uh, by the United Nations, by the U.S., by the EU, all against uh, the government in Iran, who at the time was led by a president named Mahmoud Ahmadinejad. Uh, he is very ultra-conservative, and I don't mean conservative in like the liberal conservative sense we see here in the United States, but conservative in the sense that he's very fundamentalist religiously towards Islam. And all of these sanctions have some pretty hefty impact on the Iranian economy as the currency in Iran loses about two-thirds of its value in two years. And so the, their economy tanks. And this leads to some more efforts by the United States to kind of rebuild some of these relationships, but in exchange for closing the nuclear program. And so in September of 2013, Iran gets a new president, a man by the name of Hassan Rouhani. Uh, he is a little bit more moderate. And he and President Obama at the time here in the United States speak by phone. It's the first time that any sort of conversation between U.S. and Iranian leaders, it's the first time they speak in more than 30 years directly. And so we start to see a little bit of the thawing of the tension there. And in 2015, there is the much hyped but also very controversial Iranian nuclear deal. Basically what happens here is Iran agrees to a longer-term deal on its nuclear weapons program, or its nuclear program, I should say, with several different countries. Uh, this is the P5 plus one is what it's called. It's the US, UK, France, China, Russia, and Germany. And basically under this pact, Iran agrees to kind of cut back on any sort of its sensitive nuclear activities. They agree that they're not gonna develop any nuclear weapons and they allow for some international inspectors to kind of come in to ensure that this is what they're doing in return for lifting some of those economic sanctions, which, as I mentioned, had kind of crippled the economy there. Now, this nuclear deal, as I mentioned, was very, very um, controversial. And it kind of ran along a lot of political lines, although there were some defectors on each side. But basically what would happen is that some, some people saw this as a way of dodging a military conflict in Iran. Others saw it as the United States was being way too lenient with a country that still really hadn't done much different since they'd been called the axis of evil. They were still doing a lot of the same tactics, a lot of the same human rights violations, a lot of the same terrible things that were taking place back in the early 2000s were still taking place. And the U.S. was seen as being very lenient on a country like that. And so a lot of people think that the U.S. didn't go far enough in stopping Iran from building a nuclear weapon. And there's a lot of reasons for that. That's probably, you could do a whole episode on on this deal and kind of all the fine print of it. So I'm not going to go into that right now. But basically what it leads to is ultimately President Trump says, announces that he's pulling the United States out of that deal that had been taking place in 2015 under Obama. So it lasts about two or three years, I think. He said he pulled out of the deal and reimposed sanctions. The U.S. also at this time announced that it's going to sanction other countries that buy any oil from Iran as well. 
And just recently, the, one of the bigger deals is that President Trump labeled the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps of Iran, which is their main military, as a foreign terrorist organization, which is the first time we've ever labeled a formal military of another country as a terrorist group. And so Iran, obviously, very displeased with all of that going on. And so that kind of leads a lot into, or gives a lot of backstory of what's happening and why there's been tensions between the United States in Iran for such a long time. And it really goes back all the way to the 1950s when we helped orchestrate a coup to overthrow their leader, installed a more Western leader in place, and it all kind of all hell broke loose in 1979 with the Islamic Revolution, which deposed that Shah, who was pro-Western, and put into place the, the theocratic Islamic Republic of Iran that we know today. And so basically, long story short here, the U.S. and Iran have been foes for a very long time, and Iran has pretty negative feelings towards much of the West, but the U.S. in particular, and have for decades. Now, all of that leads into the escalation of tension that is taking place today. Basically, over the last couple of decades, it's kind of been up and down, up and down, uh, with threats here and there, but nothing's really happened. But starting last year, really probably May or so, um, we've started to see the relationship worsen further. And really just in the last couple of weeks, it's jumped uh, dramatically. And so we're going to take a short commercial break here. Uh, and when, when we come back on the other side, we'll discuss what's taking place right now, what's happened in the last couple of weeks, and kind of where we might see this going going forward. Uh, and so just stick with me, uh, and I'll be back with you guys in just a minute or so. Thanks so much for tuning in, and I'll be with you guys on the other side of the break. And welcome back. Thanks so much for sticking with me through that short commercial break and allowing me to rest my voice for just a minute. We're going to go ahead and dive right back into this week's topic. Now, before the break, we talked about kind of the roots of this relationship between the United States and Iran going back to the 1950s when the U.S. helped orchestrate a coup to overthrow the current leader and install a more pro-Western Shah. We talked about the 1979 Islamic Revolution when that Shah was overthrown and they installed the Islamic Republic and kind of some of the other milestones along the way that kind of led up to the escalation that's taking place right now. And so while this relationship has been kind of testy for decades, we have seen it really escalate just in the last couple of weeks, uh, really the last couple of years. And the roots of the current escalation, the current crisis, or I should say the latest crisis between the U.S. and Iran, go back to May of last year when Donald Trump walked away from that Iranian nuclear deal. And uh, whether you were for the deal or against it, when Donald Trump walked away from the deal, that put the leadership of the two countries kind of at odds with one another. And this became escalated even further when he imposed further sanctions on the country. And I mentioned this briefly before the break, but just to kind of lead back up into today. Now, since that point, Iran has done a couple things. They threatened to exceed their enrichment limits. So the nuclear deal said that they couldn't escalate their enrichment levels beyond a certain point without getting into details on it. At lower levels of enrichment, uranium can be used for peaceful purposes. But as you up that level, you re eventually reach a certain point of enrichment that allows you to create nuclear weapons. And so by threatening to exceed those limits, that is tantamount to threatening to build nuclear weapons again. Uh, since this point, they have engaged in a lot of threatening rhetoric as well over the years. But just in the last couple weeks, we've seen this 
uh, this tension grow even further. So about two weeks ago, a series of, of explosions that took place in the Strait of Hormuz. Uh, now that I'll talk about what that is in a second, but there were two oil tankers that had explosions on them, as well as four commercial ships off the coast of the UAE uh, just last month as well. And so Iran has been blamed for this by the United States, as well as other countries. Let's talk a little bit about the Strait of Hormuz, and then we'll kind of move forward in discussing the events. So the Strait of Hormuz is a waterway, a strait between the Persian Gulf and the Gulf of Oman. And it's the only sea passage from the Persian Gulf into the open ocean. And so it's actually one of the most strategically important points, uh, water points in the world. It's a choke point of sorts. The strait it gets very narrow. Uh, it has a width of about 65 kilometers or 35 nautical miles at its narrowest. And it, there are basically three countries, I guess, that kind of border this. On the north coast is Iran. On the south coast, you have kind of the UAE and an enclave of Oman called Musandam. Now, so UAE and Oman on the bottom, on the south side, and then Iran on the north. Now, because this is such a, a strategically important location, a lot of trade runs right through this trade. About a third of all liquefied natural gas, about 20% of global oil. So it's a very highly important location for strategic trade, and international trade passing through here. Now, because this is such a key location, there is obviously a lot of concern about what would happen if, say, the country of Iran decided to block that strait. They could do so without a whole lot of ships because again only 35 miles and it would be devastating to the world economy and could really force the hand of a lot of countries so obviously the strait is of huge importance not only for the countries that border it but also for other countries that have oil trade and are really invested in the world economy which is pretty much every country so the strait of hormuz is a very strategically important location in the world for international trade and it's also one that has been used as bargaining chips in the past. Back in 2011, the vice president of Iran threatened to cut off oil supply from the Strait of Hormuz, basically threatened to block it. But we've seen this kind of threatening take place a couple different times. Uh, the European Union, the EU, imposed sanctions on Iranian oil as well. And one of, one of the members of Iran's parliament, again, threatened that they would close that strait if these new sanctions blocked their exporting of oil. And so they've threatened that a couple times. Uh, but I, and then just again last year, after these new sanctions were announced from the United States and Donald Trump, Iran threatened to close the strait again. And basically the, the Revolutionary National Guard, who was, the, again, the military of Iran, said that they were ready to carry out that action if, if need be. Later that year, August of 2018, Iran test-fired a ballistic missile as well. It's the first time they tested one in 2018. And location-wise, it was strategically very important because it flew on a flight path really over the Strait of Hormuz to some sort of test range out in the Iranian desert. And so basically it was a shore-to-shore -shore launch, which basically was a, a symbol to the rest of the world that they were capable and willing to block and defend the Strait if need be. Now, fast forward, we're going to talk the last two weeks. So June 13th of 2019, that morning, there were two oil tankers, called one called Front Altair and one called Kokuka Courageous. Uh, both of them had explosions that took place just before dawn that morning. 
Now, the crew of one of the ships announced, or reported, I should say, that they saw a, an object strike the ship, something coming in from the air. And the crew ultimately had to be rescued by uh, the USS Bainbridge. And that is a, um, a missile destroyer, basically, in the U.S. Navy. The crew of the other ship were rescued by Iranians. And Iran has been accused of orchestrating these attacks. Now, both of these ships, well, one was a Marshall Islands ship and the other one was a Panama ship, were sailing through international waters and they had just passed through the Strait of Hormuz. So they were in this region, they were in the Gulf of Oman, and initially they had ruled out very quickly that it was some sort of mechanical or human error. And there was a lot of speculation that this vessel had been hit by a torpedo of some sort. Now, the front Altair was towed to the UAE. They have a port on kind of the, the south side there. And the Kakugu Courageous ultimately arrived at a different port in the UAE a couple days later. Now, no one was hurt in either explosion, thankfully. And since that point, or I should say almost immediately since that point, there was speculation that Iran was behind this. Now, since then, we have seen uh, the U.S. military released some very grainy footage of like black and white video that showed the crew of a patrol boat, which they claimed is the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps, one of their patrol boats going up to a ship and removing what they call an unexploded limpet mine. Now, this was uh, attached to the kind of the starboard of the Kokuga Courageous, and they believed that the Iranian National Guard was trying to remove evidence of one of their mines that didn't go off. Now, this is reminiscent of something that took place about a month earlier. There were four commercial tankers that were damaged by explosions, again, in the Gulf of Oman on May 12th, so about a month prior. Uh, one was a Saudi Arabian ship, actually two Saudi Arabian ships. One was a Norwegian ship, and then one was a, a UAE tanker as well. Again, no casualties, but there were explosions on all four of these ships that d blew holes into the tanker's kind of holes. Uh, including a couple of the ships having fairly significant damage. Now, the report at the time said that those blasts were the result of some sort of, I'm going to quote them here, sophisticated and coordinated operation carried out by an actor with significant operational capacity, most likely a state actor. So what happened with those, with those first ones back in May was likely some sort of small, very quick boat that kind of came up nearby, had some trained divers that went under the water, and were able to place mines on the hull kind of below the waterline, basically intending to d disable the vessel but not totally destroy them. And then all four of them were detonated within the span of about an hour. So again, the chance that these are an accident is is almost asinine. Like it's, it's ridiculous to think that those would have been an accident. Now, the report at the time did kind of stop short of any of directly accusing any specific country. But Saudi Arabia announced at the time that they believed the responsibility lied with Iran. And so when these two ships just in the last couple of weeks had explosions, obviously thought immediately went to Iran as well. Now, Iran has denied any sort of responsibility or culpability in, this, in, in, in these cases. But pretty much everybody, everybody outside of Iran believes that Iran was involved in this. Now, last Thursday... The Iranian Revolutionary Guard announced that they had shot, they admitted they had shot down a U.S. drone. Now, they claimed this was a spy drone by the Americans that had entered into their airspace. And so they announced, so Iran announces that they have done this. The U.S. quickly announces it and they confirm that the drone has been brought down. So they confirm Iran shot down one of our drones. But the, the administration insists that the incident occurred in international airspace over that Strait of Hormuz again. 
And so there's, while they both agree Iran shot down a U.S. drone, there's some disagreement about where it was taking place. Iran says our airspace, the U.S. and most of the West basically are saying, no, it was over international airspace in the Strait of Hormuz. And so this downing of a U.S. drone has been the most recent escalation by Iran. And so this was a warning from the Iranian army and the Iranian military in general that they are capable of fighting some sort of a a small battle, right? They're capable of countering any sort of aggression by the United States. And this was seen as an act of war by a lot of people. The U.S. says this was a, a, an unprovoked attack. Uh, Iran responds, this is a clear message to America and wants to back off. Now, this is the first direct incident of the current crisis between the U.S. and Iran that involved the U.S. and Iranian militaries directly going head-to-head. -head. Obviously, a drone is not the same thing as a person head-to-head, -head, but it is, it is a arm of the U.S. military. And so this is a, a pretty huge escalation. And so in the kind of the, the end result of this is that there have been major fears across the world that these longtime foes, the United States and Iran, may be moving closer and closer to a direct military conflict or a, for lack of a better term a war and so we've seen these kind of fears pop up in various places including say for instance oil prices they've moved to over 65 dollars a barrel within 24 hours of this drone attack now the u.s uh did plan for some sort of retaliatory attack uh there was a planned attack on three different locations in iran and this was something that took place last friday and so this was probably the one of the more intriguing developments out of this because this strike was planned and depending on how how much you believe coming out of the trump administration actually from trump himself through twitter about 10 minutes before the strike was to take place he stopped it uh, he believed that in his words the strike was not proportionate to shooting down an unmanned drone because roughly 150 people could die and so he felt that the strike that they were planning was, was in his words, not proportionate to what they had done beforehand. And so this was probably a message to, to Iran of a couple things. Uh, first, it's probably a message that the U.S. is willing to take steps to defend itself. It shows strength, shows leadership, and it shows uh, resolve and resilience. At the same time, because we pulled back, it probably also shows restraint. That decision did draw mixed comments back. Some people criticized him, said he backed down when he shouldn't have backed down. But that idea of restraint, especially, at least in his words, restraint due to collateral damage, these 150 lives he may have been lost, was a positive coming out of the Trump administration. I kind of like the perspective that Dan Crenshaw takes on this. If you're not familiar with him, he is a congressman from Texas. He's the, he's the one that's um, ex-military and always wears an eye patch because he lost an eye in combat. His perspective on this was basically that the U.S. showed not only strength, but also restraint, and that the U.S. ultimately comes out stronger overall because of this. And it makes the makes Iran look weaker in, in perspective as well. And I, I kind of like the way that he puts that. I think it's probably very true that we showed both strength and restraint in this particular case because it shows that the U.S. is not only willing to go to war with Iran, but also that we're willing to to go through more diplomatic channels and to not just jump straight to attacking each other. And also likely maintains a little bit of moral high ground here because we were unwilling to take those 150 lives that could have been lost in the attack. 
And while Trump has announced further sanctions that will be levied on Iran in the next few days instead of the retaliatory attack, he's also shown that he is willing to talk more diplomatically about various issues going forward. And so this is kind of where we are right now. Now, at the time of this recording, uh, I'm recording this a little bit ahead of time of when this is going to drop on Monday. So it's quite possible something will have developed between the time of recording and the time this was released. But we're at a point where there are very high tensions where we were literally, again, depending on how you, how you interpret or believe some of the things coming out of the administration, but we were within 10 minutes of really escalating this into what would be an act of war, really. And so we came very, very close. And basically both sides are walking on very thin ice that could uh, blow up at any second. So this is something to keep a very, very close eye on going forward because U.S. has obviously been engaged in military conflicts around the world for many, many years now. And the potential here for going to war with, with Iran has a lot of mixed feelings out there. On one hand, we're a country that is tired of conflict and war, and we're tired of sending our troops into far-flung parts of the world that most Americans couldn't even label on a map, much less will ever visit or have any sort of contact with. But at the same time, the U.S. is what's considered the world hegemon, which means we're the, we're the ruling power in the world. And it is part of our job as hegemon to provide global security. And so depending on how you interpret that, any sort of hostile behavior from a country like Iran needs to be responded to and dealt with. Now, you can say maybe this is the UN's responsibility, and I think there's a solid argument there for that. But there are some concerns by many that the UN is just doesn't have the teeth for something like this. Uh, they have had some excursions in the past, and they have failed. There have been a couple civil wars where they've been able to step in and help. But by and large, the UN has not been able to really exert its strength and its power in situations like this in the past. And so you have to ask, are they capable of doing that now? And that's that's a question that's probably still up for debate. But either way, these actions by Iran are things that need to be dealt with in some way, shape, or fashion. And especially when you consider that the drone attack comes on the heels of these explosions on six different ships in the last month, this is not something that should be taken lightly. If it was a single drone that got shot down, maybe you issue a sternly worded speech or sternly worded letter and move on. But they have attacked six ships and now a drone. Thankfully, nobody has been hurt. But this escalation of now seven different attacks in the last month, and that doesn't even count attacks that they, they have been engaged with in other conflicts in Yemen or Oman or all these other places in the Middle East where they're also supposedly involved. Syria is another one where they're where they're active. Uh, they also have financial interest in Hezbollah and some other smaller terrorist groups as well. So this is a country that has a history of, of hostile behavior and really seems to be ramping it up. And so while war is obviously something that nobody wants here in this country, there is a solid argument to be made that a country in the U.S.'s position as the one supposedly leader on global security, there is, there is a role here for the United States to try to step in and provide for that security, to respond to things like this and let countries like Iran know that they can't get away with these type of violent behaviors. And of course, this isn't just the United States either, right? The U.S. doesn't want war. Nobody wants war, 
But U.S. is not alone in this either. And I'm not just talking about Western countries. Saudi Arabia just recently you know, announced that they want Iran's aggressive behavior to stop as well. So it's not just Western countries here. There are countries in the Middle East. Now, again, Saudi Arabia and Iran have a long rivalry as well. So that's probably playing into it. But this is a, a situation where there are lots of countries that are very concerned with Iran's actions. And again, those ships that were attacked were not U.S. ships, the UAE, Norway, Saudi Arabia, etc. So there's a lot of countries involved on this. And the U.S. is the one in best position to, to deal with this, uh, at least from a global perspective. Obviously, you could say, well, Saudi Arabia is right there. They should be the ones handling it. Or Iraq or some of these other Middle Eastern countries where it's directly impacting them. But when you, when you look at the fact that this is including the Strait of Hormuz, this is something like 20 to 30% of the world's economy runs through this one waterway. I mean, it's right up there with the South China Sea is one of the most important waterways in the world. And if something happens that ends up blocking that, the entire world's economy suffers because of it. And so this is not something that only impacts the Middle East. This is potentially something that could impact the world globally. So I really just encourage you guys, pay very close attention to this. This is something that may actually have real impact, not only at some sort of esoteric global elite level or some sort of political level, but if the story for moves ends up getting blocked, that will impact gas prices. That will Im impact your pocketbooks, your wallets. And on top of that, much, much worse than just impacting your wallet too. If this turns into a full-scale conflict, it could end up resulting in more troops being sent there and this turning into a full-blown war as well. And so this is something that will impact everyone to an extent. And so I, I would really just leave you with this. Pay very close attention to this. Really understand what's going on here because this disagreement, what it seems like in the, in the news now over like international airspace, international waters, you know, where was this, this drone shot down? Like all of these things that seem so minor and like trivial actually could be, could, could turn into something much, much bigger. If Iran is right and the drone crossed into Iranian airspace, then they can use a justification of self-defense. If not, if it was in international waters, then that takes on a whole different meaning because that's, that's an attack outside of their borders on a foreign entity, in this case, a drone. And so if we do end up going to war with Iran, this would be the, the first time we've really entered a war since 2003 when we went into Iraq and Afghanistan and these countries. But a war with Iran would look very different than a war with Iraq. Because Iran has a major network of regional proxies, for lack of a better term, that they can use to go after the U.S., go after U.S. allies, and it doesn't necessarily have to be within their borders. The U.S. obviously is way more powerful than Iran when looking gun to gun, right? We would, we would out, outman them, outgun them by far. It wouldn't even be close. Oh, and further too, the U.S. would be able to count on several allies in the region, Israel, Saudi Arabia, UAE, etc. But we're not really sure where a lot of the European countries lie on this issue. The French and the Germans, the UK, whether or not they would agree to join on to any sort of real military action here is a little bit up in the air. The UK obviously is consumed by issues with Brexit and other types of political concerns going on there as well. The French and the Germans have shown that they are not super keen on any sort of military action. And so we probably won't have the firepower or the political support 
that we saw during the 2003 invasion into Iraq. Meanwhile, in the Middle East, Iran has a lot of resources at its disposal. It has Hezbollah and Lebanon. They fund that, that, that terrorist group. They have the Houthis in Yemen. They have militia groups in Iraq. Uh, they could even call on some of their allies like uh, Bashar al-Assad in Syria. And so this is a, a war that would look very, very different than what happened in, in Iraq as well, because the regional allies are different and the global allies may be different as well. And this is a war that would not necessarily just be fought in Iran. If Iran can mobilize Hezbollah and the Houthis and the militias in Iraq, like I mentioned, this war could expand beyond those borders if we get there. And so, again, just going to end with this. Be very aware of what's going on here. If Iran continues to attack shipping vessels, if Iran goes after more drones, if this escalates further, there could be some serious pretty ramifications here. And we're already seeing the economy, global economy getting hit by this a little bit. As I said, oil prices are up. Airlines have started rerouting their flights so they don't cross over Iranian airspace. So that's, that's caused some cancellations of flights and things like that. And we're going to see over the next week or two if President Trump's action was indeed smart or if, if he should have gone through with the attack. Uh, I think the idea of proportionality is really important in war. And it's one that if you ever are familiar with Thomas Aquinas and St. Augustine's doctrine of just war, proportionality is one of those factors that you need for a war to be just. And so I think that concept of proportionality could become really important as well. Uh, but we're going to go ahead and close things out. I know I've gone on way too long already on this. It's just a fascinating topic. Theoretically, even next week, if this develops further, we could actually have a, a part two on this as well. And frankly, there's enough information here we could go on for, for weeks and weeks, which I won't do. But pay close attention to this. The impact here is not just localized to the Middle East. It could have global implications as well. And so pay attention to what Iran does, pay attention to what Trump says, pay attention to actions coming out of Congress. This is something that has the potential to unite both the right and the left, which there's not many things that do that anymore. Uh, but with that, we're going to go ahead and close things out. I apologize for going on too long this week. I'll be back with you guys next week for a new topic, uh, potentially a part two of this one. Who knows? Uh, but in the meantime, find me on Facebook and Twitter. My Twitter handle is Justin R underscore Kinney. Find me, follow me there, hit that follow button. You can send me messages. I'd be happy to continue this conversation with you. Uh, Facebook, I'm on there. My, I have an author named J. Robert Kinney. Find me there. I have two fiction novels out, one called Splintered State and one called Precipice. I think they're both great books. Uh, I know I'm a little bit biased on that, but they do get good reviews. So go and check those out as well. They're on Amazon and paperback and Kindle. Find me and follow me on my social media. If you'd like me to cover any specific topics going forward, I've had a couple people reach out about various topics in the past, a couple that may still come up in the upcoming weeks. So if you have a topic you want me to cover, let me know about that as well. And I'd be happy to talk with you about it or add it to the list. Also, if you are interested in supporting this podcast in any way, uh, you can find my Patreon account online, Justin R. Kinney. And you can also just reach out to me if you're interested in advertising or anything else with the podcast. I would love to talk with you more about that possibility. Uh, but until next time, this is Nutshell Politics. My name is Justin Kinney, and I am out in three, two, one.